and welcome to ASMR Tirar the Whale. Are you hoping to calm your mind, relax your body, or experience ASMR? Dr. Andrew Michaels is here to help you. Today, Dr. Andrew Michaels shares the story of what happened when he finally caught up to his young runaway shapeshifter. As you will hear, it was fortunate that he armed himself well, but not for the reasons you might expect. Hello. Welcome, how are you? Seems like forever since I've talked to you. Oh, I know, I know. It hasn't been that long, but I do worry. I worry I might let you down by not being there for you more often. Oh, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me about Seattle. British Columbia was hard enough to talk about. And don't even get me started on the Sasquatch story. Oh, the serial killer. So the FBI has been in contact with you, haven't they? <laughs> you can always count on the FBI to do their job. They're very thorough. Okay. You want to hear about Seattle? <laughs> when I finally caught up to that young werewolf. Well, you've heard of werewolf in London, werewolf in Paris. It rains every day, practically in Seattle. The only saving grace I had. I didn't fear taking him in the twilight down to the beaches near the city of Seattle, looking for clams. It appeared he'd never seen the ocean before, and that's where I found him, down by the ocean, sitting on a rock, letting the waves crash into him, his pants rolled up on his legs like any normal teenager, like anyone who's ever seen the ocean before. He, he felt an affinity, a connection to it. His eyes were keen from his years living around the dark forests of British Columbia. And he could spot whale, sign, dolphin, and even shark fin breaking the surface. He had incredible eyes. And it was amazing to see him he could spot the siphons of the clams like no one I've ever seen. Within minutes, we had dug up a whole bucketful of gooey duck. I know, it's, it's a funny word, but that's what they really call it. Gooey duck. Gooey duck is such an odd clam. It has this <laughs> disproportionately large and long siphon hose that looks strangely phallic and it's the most disgusting clam I've ever seen. 
I told him I could eat it as chowder if it was diced up, but I don't think I can eat it if I have to look at it. He laughed. As young as he is, he said, have you ever been to a ball game, Dr. Andrew Michaels? I said, yes, of course. He said, you've had a hot dog then. Why, you've ate it all. You've ate it all if you'll eat a pig's ass. <laughs> I had a laugh. It was... It was good becoming friends with somebody again. I think I was taking my work too seriously at that point. I felt the weight of my sidearm and my vest. I always carried my Colt 45 1911 model close to my chest. I didn't think I needed them both, but this one was special. It was loaded with silver-tipped bullets just in case things went sideways. Now mind you, I had no intention of killing the lad, but I could disable him with them until help arrived. And the weight of that gun felt heavy on my heart, pressing against my chest, knowing that some young man looking to start his life was risking his own death by being associated with me. I, I have to tell you, I'm going to confess I, I've lost my taste for death, for murder. At that moment, I found the weight of all my crusades coming down on me. I dreaded ever having to pull my firearm again. Always well armed, I had a 38 policeman's backup weapon, a small handled 38 silver plated in my ankle. My other ankle strapped a small German made dagger with a buckler on it very small to keep my hand from sliding down the blade basically a stick pin for lack of a better word a poker as we used to say I removed the Gestapo symbols from it a long time ago I had it remade on the handle and the pommel and of course being who I am Another 38 across my kidneys. It made it hard to walk. It made it hard to get dressed. But I always survived. Thankfully, I left my partner gun, my other Colt 45, at the hotel. I didn't see any reason to bring that much heavy armament. And it wasn't specially loaded. No reason. I wasn't planning on finding anything normal to shoot at today besides a beer can or a beer bottle. And as we filled the bucket full of water to allow the clams to 
I guess the word is wash themselves. You put them in water and then the clams come out of their shells and the siphon hoses come up to get the air. And they are not in the sand anymore, so they slowly lose the sand that's inside their shell. They wash themselves out, I guess. I'm not much of a fisherman. Oh, my wife. Yes, my wife is a fisherman, but not me. My children took after her. I could barely bait a hook. He could see I was a greenhorn, as they say, with clams, and he laughed at me. Though he had never seen the ocean, he said, on the riverbanks were small little mussels that they used to farm out every season and have special feasts. I liked sharing time with this young man. I asked him if he liked hunting, if he was going to miss it, miss the foraging for food for the, yourself and the tribe. And he, he said yes, he was a very, very well-known hunter in the area, even for his age, and trapper. And nobody ever went hungry at his table. He learned from his father, a man I greatly respected. To think I could even carry a gun that could kill a friend's child. The weight of all of this. Soldiers, they, they start to dwell on these things and they eat their hearts up in the guilt. Why was this bothering me so much? Why was I letting it bother me? It's just a simple mission. This boy actually saved my life and the life of those cheerleaders when he killed that serial killer. Why was I letting this bother me? He's, he's fine. The storm clouds of Seattle were protecting him from turning into a werewolf. His lycanthropy curse at bay. He was safe, safe. All we had to do was go back, find the other agents in the area, have a clam bake, call it a night, take the train back east and deliver him at the college. There was no reason for me to worry. Everything was taken care of. Right then, as he gazed across the ocean and we picked up our catch to carry the buckets back to the car, his eyes hit the horizon and he said, there's something coming in. There's something coming in fast. It's big. Metal glinting. Glinting. Glinting off what I said. The clouds are blocking the setting sun and the moon. What, what is it glinting off of? Not glinting, he said. They have a searchlight. There's some kind of military vessel out there. It's coming our way. 
storm clouds parted slightly. The waves slowed down enough for me to see the pier near where we were at on the beach had a vessel coming in at a quick rate. It was a long boat low in the water. I was confused by its designation. I wasn't sure what it was. Then it dawned on me, no mast, no radar, no tower. Clearly a military weapon from the deck gun in the front. My God, it's a submarine. They must be in trouble. Coming in fast, shooting a searchlight. They nearly ran into the wharf. With a tremendous, loud crack of metal, stone, and wood, part of the wharf exploding into the air, the ship become aground on the rocky rubble and sand below. They grounded it. They immediately leaped from the forward deck onto the splintered wharf, two men falling directly into the water almost like they were on a suicide mission. What was going on here? It was a small sub, the men in yellow uniforms, brownish. I couldn't tell from their silhouettes who they were. We ran, full steam, leaving our catch behind towards the wharf. I fell behind. When I finally caught up, they had exited their craft. They were marching down the wharf. I caught up to my young ward. The Native American had already scoped out the situation. He was waving me down to a rock he was hiding behind. At least a dozen soldiers and a leader of military uniforms. It started to become clear to me I was looking at World War II vintage Japanese sailors. What in the world was I looking at? The war had been over for many years at this point. But there in front of me, a gaggle of geese like I've never seen in all my life. Japanese soldiers walking on to the beach near Seattle, the west coast, the state of Washington. We were being invaded and they were armed to the teeth. He signaled me, and I ran up to him. They obviously had not seen me, too busy marching in order and formation, their leader with his samurai sword already drawn, barking out orders, a few stragglers on the beach, necking, making out, hiding between the rocks, were running from the beach, screaming, he directed two soldiers to run up and round them up. I couldn't let this happen. I quickly pulled my 9-11-45 and handed it to the young man. I told him, don't fire unless you have to. You're out of range. He kind of looked at me silly as I pulled my snub-nosed 38 from my back holster. Why am I telling him not to fire? Look, if you find a shot, you take it, young man. Do you hear me? 
I'd prefer you disable them than kill them. The ship itself seemed to be on fire. They must have been in duress. The ship catching on fire in the harbor. Ah, that's why they crashed. The ship was disabled. The men looked old, haggard, worn out, their uniforms not in the best of order. Some of them dressed in simpler mechanics clothes. Do I try to get between the two soldiers and the tourists? Or do I fire a warning shot and waste a bullet? I didn't have a lot of shells with me. We were totally outgunned and outranged. Maybe they're just in trouble. Maybe they just need assistance. Stupidly, I yelled, Hello, friends. I said a few words in Japanese that I knew. Oh, that was a mistake. That was a mistake. They immediately saw our position behind the rock. He pointed his samurai sword. The leader screamed out a command. They broke off from the Taurus. At least I accomplished that. Now I have twelve heavily armed Japanese World War II soldiers closing the distance with me, bayonets fixed, their leader carrying out an insane samurai charge on two people hiding behind a rock with handguns. I didn't know what to do, but the soldier in me clicked in. I told him, point and unload. Force of will and overwhelming fire. Hopefully, if we discharged directly into them while they were still grouped, we could break their charge before they closed the distance. There's no way I could take them on, even with this man's help. He said, right. Lowered the gun onto the rock for steadying and he unloaded the entire forty-five clip. The first three shells that had silver-tipped bullets went awry. The range on them are so horrible. He stopped firing after three shells, gave me a quick look, and said, All right, what was that about? And then turned and discharged the rest of the shells. I said, Don't worry about it, as I fired and emptied my five-shot thirty-eight. It's a smaller weapon, a backup weapon. It didn't even have six rounds in it, and I only had one set of reloads each. I pulled my forty-five clip from inside my pocket and handed it to him with one hand while I quickly opened the thirty-eight with my other hand, trying to get behind the rocks. The shells started coming back at us. I got clipped in the shoulder glancing blow, probably rock bouncing up from the shot that hit it. I l quickly fell behind the rock, turned, put my back against it. At least I was semi-safe that way as the shells came in. The young man undid the clip. It fell to the sand. I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to clean that. And he jammed the other full clip in. Should we fire? I said, no, wait, let's see, let's, let's see what we're dealing with. 
I peered around the side of the rock and almost had my head taken off. They were less than twelve feet away and closing fast. Their leader firing his revolver. No, 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 no. Semi-automatic weapon. He was using the same strategy we were. His soldiers charging with bayonets. They were closing the distance so they didn't use up their ammo. This was potentially a chance for us. We had to take advantage of this moment. If we got in too close, they couldn't fire at us properly with their weapons. So I charged around the rock as quickly as my old, crippled-up, sore, broken-down, fat body would move, and I slammed headlong into two soldiers. They were thin and emaciated and fell backwards from my hit. Of course, stumbling almost into their bayonets, I tripped up over their weapons, and I rolled over top of them, crashing into the sand, the rest of the group charging past me. The young Native American, my charge, the boy I was there to protect, stuck the gun against the rock again, aimed, fired off the whole clip into their lower bodies, splitting their legs. He shot seven of them, my two and seven others with cracked knees, thighs, and lower legs, splintered, bone fragments shooting everywhere, blood spraying. It was a disgusting sight. He dropped seven men before he emptied the gun. I was amazed at his accuracy. With the gun empty, he turned it over like a hammer. He grabbed the barrel of the first soldier that came around the rock and he pulled the gun towards him and struck the man fully on the forehead. Now eight down. He knocked down eight soldiers. He cracked the man's head like a melon, my gun handle shattering on his skull. He pulled the gun, and the bayonet came loose as his hand slid down the barrel. He turned almost in one fluid move and stuck the bayonet and the other soldier coming around the rock. That's nine. My God, this man is a warrior. He jumped onto the rock, did a forward flip with the bayonet in his hand, and slammed into the tenth soldier. The two there with me were scrambling trying to get up. I swung my thirty-eight, empty, no weapon, and I struck one across the bridge of his nose. Blood flew up into my eyes, his glasses flinging into the air, the glass from his right lens biting deep into the back of my hand. I hurt myself. I dropped my weapon. I didn't know what to do other than grab my knife. I reached down to the right leg where my knife was and pulled it out. The other soldier on his knees fell on top of me. He couldn't have weighed more than a 120 pounds. He was a skeleton. These men were starving. I was quickly assessing the situation, but I had to take action, or I was going to die. I reached up and stabbed as hard as I could into his abdomen. He fell over like a deck of cards. I killed him. He died. Right there. So drawn, so starving. The strike and the shock. He died right there. 
I left my knife in him. I fell back, rolled over, and started to get to my feet. The lieutenant and the other two soldiers, as insane as this could be, taking up position behind the rock. I, my ward running towards me. You've got to get it out of your head. You've got to get moving or you're going to die. I grabbed the weapon in front of me. He closed the distance. Dr. Andrew Michaels, are you okay? He had his back to them. They were taking up position, ready to fire on him, removing their bayonets. They were going to kill him, assassinate my young ward. I grabbed the weapon in front of me. The bayonet had fallen off. I cocked the hammer back. The bolt, I mean. The bolt on the rifle. Tell the story right. And it was loaded. It had at least one round in it. I slammed the bolt forward, threw the gun to him. It hit him square in the chest. He grabbed it, rotated completely around, swung the strap of the gun around his arm, fell to one knee. The three remaining soldiers were amazed. They were amazed. He took the first shot. He split the leader's skull like a... <sighs> he killed him. That's what he did. The bolt came back. He slammed it forward. He fired another round. And then they fired on him. And that's when it happened. Simultaneously, he fell and knocked one of the remaining soldiers down. The last soldier got up and started running. Gasping for air. Gasping for breath. Oh my God. He's going to die in my arms. As I was holding him. Luck. Destiny. I don't know what you want to call it. A break in the clouds. A small sliver of moonlight almost like the call of a distant train whistle blowing across the beach, beckoning the man, beckoning this young man, the moonlight striking his leg, moving up his body. Everywhere it hit, he started to transform, and the train whistle blew harder as the winds of destiny and time came forward, his chest healing, heaving, he leaped from my arms. Run away, he said as his jaw distended, as he started to transform. The train at full go now, the young man roaring, transforming. The Japanese soldier now enveloped by the darkness, not enough moonlight to hide him or to expose him. My young ward, fully transformed, he grabbed a man's leg and ripped it off like he was pulling a turkey leg on Thanksgiving. He took a bite as he leaped the fifteen feet from my position to the rock we were using as defense. He surveyed all around him 
and let out a cackling, cackling dog-like laugh. And he was off, the train full on down the tracks, in the darkness away from me. I closed my eyes. I thanked heaven above that the moonlight was not bright enough for me to see what was happening next. I heard one quick muffled scream from the surviving soldier and then silence silence except for the crunch and crunch and crunch of bone i pulled my ankle holster weapon checked the shells no silver tips. My gooses, they say, cooked. The young man returning with his trophy, but not the trophy I thought. Like a dog, like a dog, trying to please his master, the train returned down the tracks. And there in his grasp was the bucket full of gooey duck, he was chomping on one. The cracking sounds I heard were him busting the shells in his teeth. A dog in his bone. A dog in his bone. He was trying to show me what he had brought me, his treasures. The buckets of gooey duck. I told him, good boy good boy, and I quickly holstered my weapon. In the morning, we discovered that the radio did not work on the submarine. It must have been out for years. These soldiers hid on small islands in the Pacific rationing fuel, food, supplies, waiting for their command, waiting for the command to attack. Their ship carried a very large bomb that was rather quickly disassembled for safety purposes. The idea was to run the ship into a wharf near the city and cause a great explosion, possibly on a fuel depot. The primer charge misfiring and causing the smoke and fire that we saw the night before. Their fuel levels at near empty, no possibility of gaining fuel, food, supplies, they finally gave up the ghost and charged for their destination. The last attack of World War II before my very eyes. I was amazed at their perseverance. These grand soldiers dying for a lost cause, 
for an emperor who would rather have them return home to their families at this point. An honorable but futile death for all of them. I found myself regretting my actions, but what was I to do? When they realized the charge had not gone off as planned, they probably would have returned the sub and detonated it manually. It was either them or us. As I ate my bowl of clam chowder, I thought about the carnage I saw that night, and that didn't bother me as much as realizing I was eating gooey duck, which is the most disgusting clam I've ever seen in my life. It's, it tastes pretty good, though, but it's disgusting. And I was thinking about hot dogs and what they put in them. It was hard to finish my meal. I turned to my young ward and said, No more adventures. You're going to college, young man. And he laughed at me as he finished his clam bake. The other agents laughing along with him. We'll take it from here, Dr. Andrew Michaels. We'll take him on to college. You've got to stay here and fill out reports. As we parted ways, I hoped someday to see him again and have him tell his side of the story. I would love to hear his input, his memories of the events. And I know his father's going to kill me when he finds out he was shot by a Japanese sniper. How am I going to explain that? I'm not. Well, that's my story. That's how I learned how to cook clam chowder with gooey duck clams. I hope you're happy. <laughs> I need a vacation, I really do. You too? Good. Maybe we can go to the travel agent tonight. After work. Two tickets to Hawaii. I'll go anywhere as long as there's no gooey duck. And I'm not going to the Pearl Harbor Museum. Thank you for joining us for ASMR Tirar de Cuello. Please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. If you are interested in additional ASMR content, you may view our library of videos at youtube.com slash The theme song, Atlantis, is by Jason Shaw of audionautics.com and is used by permission. Correspondence, including questions or requests, may be sent to tirardojeo at gmail.com. On behalf of Dr. Andrew Michaels, thank you.